Luca Nets, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And Luca, you are the CEO of Pudgy Penguins. And to kick us off, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, um, I uh, am a serial entrepreneur. I've been building businesses for the last six years. Direct consumer and consumer products has really been my specialty. And about uh, a couple, almost a year now, 11 months ago, we decided to buy Pudgy Penguins. Uh, I was kind of frustrated with the outputs from the executive leadership in the space in general. I just felt like so many people had raised so much capital from venture and community and had delivered so little output. And also being a huge Pudgy Penguins fan, I was disappointed at that team specifically. And I said, you know, rather than complaining about it, let's just do it ourselves. And um, it's been a wild journey ever since. That's amazing. Okay, so let's go a little bit into your background a little bit more. So before you were involved in the toy industry? Yeah. So uh, Gel Blaster was the company I was a part of before this. And so Gel Blaster is North America's fastest growing toy company. Uh, absolutely crushing it. And um, that that kind of exposed me to the world of, you know, IP and toys, which I think gave me a lot of familiarity, you know, being a part of Gel Blaster, I went to every conference of every major toy company and IP company. Uh, so, you know, the Disney conferences, Marvel, DC, licensing expos, toy. And, and so I just like got exposed to this world where, you know, there's IPs you've never heard of worth billions of dollars, like unbelievable stuff. And so really understanding the magnitude of what it is to create a character that people fall in love with and all the opportunities that come with that, uh, I think gave me the comfort to make the decision to buy Pudgy Penguins. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the acquisition because you said you were, you were a fan of Pudgies and the team that launched it, they weren't executing. And so what, what in your mind, you know, just how do you make that decision to be like, Hey, you know what? Like I'm going to acquire them. Cause I feel like, that's a, that's a really, really big decision to be like, I'm going to acquire this IP and I'm going to take on the, the, this entire branded company. Yeah. So I don't really talk about this too much, but like there's, there's a layer of honesty here from the business perspective that like, you know, Bored Apes, four and a half billion dollar raise, you know, being conceptualized within 12 months uh, really showed to me that this was a space that major players were taking very seriously. And with that, I looked at other raises other than Board Apes, and I looked at what they had delivered and what really had got them to those valuations. And I looked across the landscape and I said, you know, you guys aren't really doing much. And you have this IP and Pudgy Penguins that's as OG as it comes. It's, you know, a backbone to Web3 meme culture. And it also has this brandability and this IP that per my learnings in the toy business, you know, fits into this category of amazing IPs that I think has huge potential to just be a traditionally, you know, a traditional multi-billion dollar business. And so I'm looking at this NFT and this Web3 layer of extreme builders and amazing community and amazing IP and amazing lore and history. And then on the other side, I'm looking at, you know, the potential to build a, a brand that transcends outside of this ecosystem, but also ties it all together. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if Board Ape can, you know, be a four and a half billion dollar company, like there's a lot of things they can't do. And with Pudgy, there's a lot of things that we can do that others cannot. And so I'm just looking at the landscape. I'm understanding the business potential as an entrepreneur. Like that is important to me. And I'm thinking to myself, like, let's build this thing. 
because the bar is incredibly low. The valuations are incredibly high and we can beat them. And I just, I just knew we could beat them. And I think the most impressive thing that we've done up to this point is the fact that we've pretty much had no money on this journey. Um, and we've been able to beat most of them with no capital. And so also kind of changing the paradigm within Web3 that you don't need $20 million to build. You know, we've shown the world that you need grit, you need tenacity, and you need, you know, the love for something to actually get things done. And that's all you need. If there's a will, there's a way. You don't need millions of dollars to accomplish greatness. I love that. That's awesome. All right. So what are the similarities and what are the differences between physical goods and then digital goods? Because NFTs are essentially just like digital merch. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think from a from a digital side, there's a lot of pros, right? There's no inauthenticity issues. There's no friction in buying and selling if you want to flip or if things appreciate and accrue in value. The accrue, you know, value being accrued is very clear and transparent. It's fun. It's frictionless. Uh, but I think it, it lacks an emotional touch point that physical products can give, right? And so physical products to me are easier to scale because I think the digital side, you know, digital scarcity in your ecosystem, I think is important. I don't think we're at a place today where having a million NFTs in your ecosystem is going to bode well. I think we've seen other people do that and it's failed miserably. And so, you know, physical products, at least for the model of NFTs today, I also think are huge for generating like real revenue and, and, and something that you can kind of cover your burn and scale and grow versus like this, you know, revenue stream of digital collectibles, which ends up being, if you look at it from a macro lens, like scaling digital collectibles ends up hurting one person and one person only. And that is the holder, right? Like the holder of the first, you know, the, the first believers in your ecosystem are holding your digital assets. And the more that you kind of dilute that, the more it can become harmful to the math of how you can accrue value between scarcity and demand. And it just becomes like a harder hill. And it shows that like, you can only do that so much. And it's something I'm really trying to avoid, like with a 10 foot pole, like I want to try to keep our digital ecosystem as scarce as possible until like there's overflowing inbound. So I think the digital ecosystem is, is amazing for many reasons. Uh, I think the physical ecosystem is, you know, amazing for many reasons, including like touch points and, and being able to like gift to friends and family in a way that just like NFTs don't resonate today. Um, and then I think, you know, more importantly, from a business and financial perspective, like the digital ecosystem to me is very much a collectible. It's very much like the finite resource, the bottom of the funnel. And then like the physical products is really like the top of the funnel, the emotional touch points, you know, creating a, a deeper value proposition between, you know, holder or, you know, company and fan base. And so that's kind of how I look at it. How do you define Pudgy Penguins? Because it's like part media company, part uh, kind of toy company part. It's like all these different pieces put together. How, how do you define it? I think it's an IP company. And I, I really don't know why more people don't label their projects like this, because when you really look at it, you know, if I were to say we were a game company, I'm like kind of boxing the brand in a little bit because it's like, okay, we're a game. But if I'm an IP company, if you look at a pyramid and you put an IP company at the, t you know, the word IP company at the tippity top of that pyramid, well, that's amazing because it's like relatively vague. It's built around the character, right? Like the character is the IP. So that is what everything is about. You know, our ethos internally as a company is like, everything's about driving awareness to the pudgy penguin character. 
But that doesn't mean I can't go build a game or I can't build a film or a short animated series or a toy company or, you know, NFTs and digital collectibles or tech stacks. Like I can do anything if I'm an IP company versus me saying, hey, I am, you know, I am this. Like I'd rather be an IP company because like Pokemon to me is not a game company. They had an amazing game, but Pokemon's an IP company. Right. And so I think categorizing it as IP is so much more advantageous in terms of being able to scale the vision and not being put into a box. And so that's how I define Pudgy Penguins. And I really wish more people in the space define their projects the same way. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned like driving awareness. That, that that's kind of your 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 main goal here. And so how do you how do you go about building a brand uh just in general? Just because I feel like there's so many different angles to attack it. And that optionality is almost like paralyzing you're like well do we do tiktok do we do this do we do this like how do you decide what what is the most important and where to attack yeah that's a really great question um i think a lot of it is split testing and a b testing so that's like the culture that a lot of our team comes from and so for example like when we first started we were trying all social medias and then instagram stuck so we doubled down on instagram and now we're perfecting that process and once that assembly line is relatively autonomous then we go and scale into the next platform and split test there and so I think, you know, our job as a team is to really find the places that are sticking the most and then leaning in, you know, from our perspective, th- there's a, there's a lot of verticals here and there's a, th- this is the complexity of a web three business, especially the way that we're looking at it. There is so many facets and moving parts. Um, you know, our main goal is to create a brand and a character that people can relate with, that people can identify with. And that people can eventually become just emotionally attached to. Like, how do you create a character that people can really rally behind? And I think that encompasses a multitude of different facets and we can dive deep if you want. But, you know, that's really our objective is like, how do we create something that impacts people in a positive way? Because if I can do that, I believe it's really easy to support a company that is supporting you. So you tweeted attention is the new oil. So it's kind of building up what we're talking about now. And First of all, you know, how do you think about building that attention? I know you said A-B testing, but is do you have uh, some sort of more uh, more detailed strategy you're open to talking about? And then also, how do you think about the distribution rails? Because it's like, do I want to, um, you know, build up a newsletter or do I want to go to YouTube or, you know, how, how do you think about that? Yes, yeah, so distribution rails, like it's all about the character. Like I tell the team, if the character is not being showcased, Don't do it. We don't care. So like a newsletter, perfect example of what we're not doing. How is that show? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no showcasing of the character for me. I just need people to see the penguin or to think penguins and think pudgy penguins. If I can accomplish that, we win. Right. And then you said a first question and I, and I forgot it. I'm sorry. Um, Uh, No, I was, I was, uh, it was about your tweet. Attention is new oil. Yes. And uh, yeah, just wanted to dig, dig, dig deeper into there. Yeah. So for me, it's all about touch points. So some people don't really like, they think they over convolute some of the things that we're doing, but to me, it's like, okay, I'm one touch point. So it's my job as a CEO and the founder to be like a beacon and to be a champion, right? So I'm touch point number one, you know, touch point number two is, you know, Instagram. If you're scrolling through Instagram, you're getting hit with the explore page, you're getting hit with a pudgy penguin touch point. Number two, touch point. Number three, you're texting friends or going into your gifts. Somebody sends you a pudgy penguin get wow. Touch point number three, touch point number four, you know, a TikTok strategy with the mascot. Then you're getting hit with another touch point. Touch point number five, traditional press, web three, community, you know, all of the people that are wearing pudgy penguin PFPs, touch point number five. 
touch point number six, physical products, right? I'm, you know, this is what I do best, but once our physical product lines come out, like I will follow you on Google. I will follow you on Twitter. I will follow you on Instagram. I will follow you on Facebook. You will see pudgy penguins. Once I get you on my website, once you will never, you will, you will be played with pudgy penguins unless you block it. Right? So that just letting you know now block pudgy penguins. If you don't want to see it, because I'm going to make sure that that's my specialty. You will not be able to go a single place without seeing it. And then eventually you hit people with so many touch points that people would just think to themselves, like it becomes undeniable. My job day one, that what I told the team, it's very simple. And I told the community to this, like our objective is to make our greatness undeniable so that when NFTs hit their super cycle again, when the craze becomes inevitable, because it is like people are going to be asked, well, what NFT am I going to buy? And one is going to be evidently clear and you're going to be able to stack you know, pudgy penguins against the rest. And you're going to be able to see one that is clearly resonating and transcending and impacting people in a way that none of the others are. And if you like to make, you know, I, I, you know, if you, I don't know how to say this without, you know, coming, coming off wrong, but like, if you make like a, a, if you think that you're making like smart decisions, I feel like a smart decision is based on, you know, we're clearly marketing better than everyone else. We're clearly, you know, touch, like have touch points where nobody else is going. We clearly have more awareness than everyone else. We're clearly making more money than everyone else. We're clearly have like, just a, like, and so at that point you can make the smart decision with your capital to say, Hey, I'm going to buy the unproven project or the project that's messed up. I might like it, but like, screw the liking of things like who's really doing it. And to me, I think this even reigns true today. It like, I, there's only so many projects that I think you can buy that, that you could probably think are better than pudgy penguins, which I think there's very few. I think the number is on one hand, truthfully, if, and this is me speaking objectively, and then people are just going to ultimately make the decision that pudgy penguins is the project for them for the reasons that I just listed. That's awesome. Okay. So you said, you said, um, your job as the founder is to be, be like that first touch point that, that beacon. And I want to ask you just about your, I guess, management style in general. Um, because certain, there's certain types of founders, certain founders are like, Hey, I'm going to go out and be like the, the, the beacon, as you mentioned, other founders, like I'm going to be nitty gritty on products. I'm going to do X, Y, Z, whatever. How would you categorize or how, how do you, how do you think about running Pudgy Penguins as an org and how do you operate? That's yeah, a great question. I think internally, my superpower is I'm a leader and I know how to galvanize, right? Like I, I speak really well. I have a really amazing vision, like conceptualizing, you know, the products, you know, we had a, a, an inflection point because as a leader, I've evolved tremendously uh, while being a part of this. In the beginning of this company's tenure, I was micromanaging everything, like ripping everything apart. And I can still do that today. But I've really learned to trust my team and understand that we have too many departments. And if I were to micromanage it, I'll just end up dying. And, and I'll actually end up just pissing everyone off, which like for a short moment I was. And so I had to like retract, um, you know, one thing that's been great. We've, I've hired an executive coach only because I just know that I can be better and that there's a science to being, you know, a leader versus me just being a natural leader. And so she's been amazing. Grace has been phenomenal in terms of like just refining certain points. I, I highly recommend an executive coach, even if you think you're the best CEO ever, like there are things that you will find that make you a better leader. And, and she's been a great improvement in terms of how I've been leading. But I think the key is, is just, I am, 
I am the person who's rubbing shoulders. I'm the person who's taking like the big meetings. I'm the person who's like, you know, we're overarching, looking at like where we want to be five years from now, getting that overarching vision, making sure our C-level suite is aligned, and then really just trusting them. I, I this was really hard for me, but a couple months ago, I I realized we realized what was working. And part of what was working was me just being that voice and that champion for this brand. And with that means that I'm going to have less time on product, less time on tech, less time on ripping things apart, which means I have to trust my C-level suite who manages their respective departments to get their jobs done. And ever since I've, we've done that and we made that transition, things have been exponentially better. One, from a, a company culture standpoint, like everybody is a lot more happy. Like when I'm laying into people just saying how many things are wrong, that actually like ruins company happiness and company happiness i've actually found my job is like 50 percent of my job is like making sure people are happy and that like they under the vision is clear like understanding that the vision is exponentially clear and that there's no confusion on the vision and that two people are just happy to be here because now it's just like i i, I want people to be stoked to get up every day because if they're stoked they will do good work and if they're not stoked It'll feel like a job. And the second things feel like a job, I can remember when I worked a job, you clock in and you clock out and you're out of there. And so there's this really interesting balance. But I found, uh, you know, from a public facing perspective, I'm a really good forward facing leader. I'm super empathetic. I understand people's perspectives. Uh, and, and so I'm not here to say that my way is the highway. I did something wrong recently. I co completely owned up to it. You know, like not here to fight and say that I'm right when I'm like clearly wrong. You know, so like I think these are my strong suits. And from an internal perspective, like, you know, be a galvanizer, make sure the vision is clear, obviously run through product when big decisions need to be made, make them as a group, as a unit. But most importantly, just trust my team and create an environment that people really want to be a part of. That's amazing. Okay. So I, we, we touched upon this a little bit, kind of storytelling. Uh, and you said something that's super interesting. You're like, I'm not trying to overcomplicate things. You're like, you know, there's gifts, there's this, there's this. Um, is that how, cause when I imagine storytelling, I think of like a book, right? Uh, I think the most like, simplistic way, but how do you think about storytelling? How do you think about telling Pudgy's story? Yeah. So we've hired a couple amazing people uh, to tell this story and the story's going swimmingly well like it, it it is when i read these weekly updates from john uh who sends us like how we're building out the story i i i just smile for joy and so story does have to be deep it doesn't mean that today i go make a short form animated series but you have to define your story as soon as possible and this is again was not our core competency in the beginning and so we're kind of a little bit like the whole the nature of the deal and, and the, the, the kind of the bucket we were dropped in like how you build an ip company in it like typically is not how we're building it here because of just like the box the bucket that we were put in buying something that was already existing with an existing community with existing lore with existing ideas existing nfts that you have to tie into everything so there was a little bit of an adjustment but things have to be cohesive. Like that is the one thing that we caught kind of about like four or five months into it and getting thing cohesive, things cohesive take a lot of time. So like there's one thing that the community hasn't seen, but like our brand Bible and our art Bible, like these are multi hundred page documents that like took months to make that we are now are just like have finished them. And so now we can, and like now John is like halfway done with like the story and the lore. And so now we can really make things cohesive. Like all the scenes have to be scenes within the world. Like, you know, you don't need to necessarily go and make a, a short form animated series and tell a series, a story like SpongeBob tells a story or like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tells a story, but like at a minimum, 
you can start laying the groundworks and the pieces so that like when you are ready for that, like it all makes sense. It's not like scattered. And so this is kind of our focus for these next 12 months. Our core competency isn't in writing stories or animating shorts. Like that's not what we're good at. But my goal is let's create a huge brand with huge awareness, which we know how to do things that none of these other guys know how to do. And so that once our brand is big enough, the best in the world at storytelling in terms of writing books or short form animated series and animators will come to us and say, hey, we'll build your thing. Perfect example to this is Board Ape. Board Ape's team doesn't know how to build games. They love games and they play games, just like I love stories and I read stories and I love film, right? But they built such a big brand that eventually the best game developers in the world came to them and said, hey, we want to build your game. And I want to take the exact same approach. I am not at one moment for a couple of weeks. Like, I'm so glad I pulled out of it. I actually had an anecdotal experience that made me realize where we were headed and how it was going to screw everything up. We were like, okay, we're going to build a game. We're going to allocate a million dollars to a game. We're going to allocate a million dollars of short animated steam. And then I'm looking at our burn. I'm like, dude, we're getting like five, six million dollars in the year. <laughs> no way, Jose. We, none of these are our core competencies. So why are we going to go try to build a game and hire that staff? Why are we going to go try to build a short animated? Like That's not what we're good at. We're good at what we're good at, right? And so leaning into the things that we're good at, making sure that we're exponentially better than everybody else at these facets, and then kind of growing from there. That's awesome. All right. So building in public, I feel like that's one, it's a blessing and a curse for sure. But uh, I think in times like this and more of a bear market vibes, it's definitely more of a burden because you have this constant group of people that are not happy, you know, or, you know, pinging you in discord and Twitter or whatever. Hey, you could do, do more, do more, do more. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And then also I saw that you, you've created this incredible document, do, like kind of documentary series um, slash like reality, reality show on YouTube, which shows the behind the scenes of building out Pudgy Penguin. So tell me about like building in public and tell me about that, that docu-series. Yeah, so I, I call NFT projects publicly traded startups for that exact reason. Like, I think it's the ultimate building in public masterclass. And kind of what you're alluding to, like the kind of, uh, excuse my language, but I have no other word to say it, but like the ball busting of like, hey, like you need to do better. I'm thankful, like the Pudgy Penguins community is incredibly intelligent. Like this is, was like, there's a lot of communities out there. I don't want to say anybody's less intelligent than others, but like, they're very crypto native. They're very smart. They're not people that came in through an Instagram post during the bull run and they like know nothing about the space. They were like, they're very familiar with what's going on. And they also have like a great form of consciousness. And why I think that's important is because the nature of our deal, I think puts us at a competitive advantage compared to everybody else, because I've never taken a single thing from the community. I've actually given an exponential amount of money and time into making this thing great for good reason. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. Like my, our brand equity is worth a ton. And so like, it's definitely mutual. Like they, their reason as to why our brand equity is worth a ton, but like we came in here, we put our money where our mouth is. There's not, there's not a single holder who has more invested financially than we do. Right. So like we are mutually aligned in terms of like financial commitments. We haven't minted, like we had, you know, when, when we almost ran out of money, I was ready to put in more money, right? Like I wasn't going to be like, hey, we're at a three floor. I could bust a couple million dollar mint. And like, you know, like it was always every decision I make is for in their best interest. And we also, unlike most projects, every single day you can refresh our Instagram and see that we're gaining thousands of followers. 
every single day you can go on Giphy and see that we're getting tens of millions of views every single day. So like when there's nothing going on per se, like no big announcement, you also know that it's not like they're twiddling their thumbs and not doing shit. Like you were clearly growing, like every single day we're moving the puck forward, whether it's like the most meaningful endeavor or, you know, maybe just growing a couple thousand Instagram followers at the end of the day, like you're seeing the output we're working and we're delivering and we're doing it with exponentially less resources than everybody else. And so where I feel like most projects have taken from their community in terms of like, you know, huge mints or whatever, like we've went as far of like, like people, this is like totally not even like, we don't, I actually don't think we get the credit we deserve for this, but like every blue chip project had 5% royalties. When we first took over, I could have easily just switched that button and put 5% and like, but for four months, we were at 3% royalties because I didn't want the community thinking that we were trying to take from that. Like, think about that. Like with no money in the bank, when we really needed the capital more than anybody else, after we just put two and a half million dollars in, I didn't bump the royalties to standard blue chip royalty rates because I wanted the community to know that I, I didn't want to take from them, that I was here to like prove myself. And only until I proved myself that we bumped the royalties to 5%, right? And so like, if you just kind of look at it, like, like I tell the community this in like a jokingly way, but like respectfully, like if you want to like try to like mentally battle me and like try to put me down, like just get out, you know, because like, because like no one can say no one in the NFT leadership, no NFT project can say they've sacrificed the way that we've sacrificed for our group. And so if you want to like make me feel bad and give me anxiety and like make my heart like bump, you know, an extra 30 BPMs, like just, just, just please go like South floor. The blur bids are great for that. You know, just like floor it, go on to something else and go bully and antagonize somebody because like, I think I've sacrificed more than any other founder in the space. So like, I don't appreciate the bullying. I don't appreciate any, like, I love constructive criticism. Give it to me. There's a, an amazing way to tell me how I can do better. And like, they do it and we improve. Like so many of the little tweaks we make, community was like, hey, we don't like the font on Instagram. We switched it. Now the font's like 10 times better. Like, you know, like I listen to everything. I hear everything. I digest everything. Just say it in a respectful and, and clear way. Don't be like, you freaking idiot, you loser. Like I, I, I didn't put two and a half million dollars to be called a loser. And I think, communities now being in a leadership perspective, like there's been one or two times where somebody's come at me like personally, it shuts me off. I just don't even want to work that day, you know? And like, I think communities need to understand that. Like if you're bullying your founders, like please make sure there's like a real warranted reason as to why you're like really attacking them. Because if not, it just makes me and the team want to check out for the day. Cause like we all like the few, we've had two little moments like this where like just somebody was being extremely difficult. Like, our whole day is dealt is dealt with this one person. Like, how is that helping everybody? How is that helping the community? How is that helping our bags? Like, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. So this is this is a I'll use this as a moment to kind of relay on this podcast and this interview. Like, if you're listening to this and you're one of those antagonizers, I respect it and I respect constructive criticism. Continue to do it, but understand the way you approach people because you actually are probably doing more harm than good if you're not communicating it appropriately. All right. So how do you think about floor price, because I feel like floor price, it's, it's a weird world that we're in where a startup has this collectible good that has this, you know, quote unquote, publicly traded price that people look at. It's almost like a sentiment gauge. They're like, oh, floor price is down. People don't believe. Oh, floor price is up. Pe you know, pe people are su super into it. How do you view that? Is it like a gauge on sentiment? 
So there's two people. There's so NFT founders will say, "Don't give a shit about floor price," and I actually think that's a bad take. The only people that are saying that are either have a super high floor price and they don't need to worry about it, a la Board Ape. So the founders of Board Ape will be like, "Fuck floor price." Well, yeah, for sure. You're at a 74, like everything is golden. You've hit your milestones. You're a five billion dollar business. Of course, you. I wouldn't care about like you've done. You've made your holders so much. Like, yeah, I get that take. If I was Borden and Garga, I'd say the same thing. And then the other at facet is like the projects whose like floor prices have completely crumbled, like completely bought. Like it's like almost they're like ah screw floor price we're building. You know, for me, like this is like some some interesting insight and some interesting alpha. But like the amount of t-shirts I sell at a one-eighth floor price versus a sixtieth floor price is not even comparable. You know, the amount of t-shirts I'll sell at a twentieth floor price versus a sixtieth floor price will probably not even be comparable. And so like the floor price sets the bar to like how people value your project. Now, there's variables you can't control. For example, we pumped to seven and a half ETH floor. We got brought back down to five. But why that happened was we had a whale who had 200 penguins who you know needed capital for other reasons who sold 200 penguins. Like he was our biggest holder. Was our you know was literally the guy who held the floor like in the chaos. Like complete Chad, not knocking him for selling. You have every right to sell. You do what you want. But like there's ver- instances like that where it's like yeah, like I can't control that. I can't control one person needing to allocate capital into a different ecosystem and him just selling out of like the ETH ecosystem. I, I get that. You know, um, and so like there's those little variables that you cannot control, like FTX, you know, rugging and our floor price going from three ETH to one and a half can't control that. So like there's obvious things you can't control and like those can't affect you. Right. But like I look at floor price on a month over month basis, I think day by day you can't like it's just like you, you'll kill yourself if you do that. But like if I'm going quarter over quarter with floor price not going up, I Got to look at it the same way that Google would look at it, right? Like if Google is like two quarters, stock is down quarter over quarter. You think Google is just going to sit there and be like, you think Apple at Tim Cook is just going to be like, ah, it's all right. Like, okay, if there's a recession going on, maybe Tim Cook, Tim Cook won't give a shit. You know, like granted macro condition you can't control. But if everything is good, if markets are stable or markets are green, like, and, and you're down quarter over quarter, like you, you've got to look at it. Like something's wrong. Right. And so it's not the all and be all. I actually look at like Twitter sentiment more. Like we're like, we're the most popping thing on Twitter right now. So like floor price is not going up, but you know, blur bitters are the reason why. Like, you know what I mean? Like, dude, like every time you move half an ETH, you get dumped a hundred because some blur bitters farmed them. So like, like I look at sentiment, I think above all else, like how many penguins do I see on my feet? Are people talking about us? Are they, you know, like, cause that is more important. But I'm also not like hiding from the floor price and like, because if floor price goes below a certain amount, like I'm, I'm doing something wrong. And so like, what am I doing wrong? And I got to fix it. I can't just neglect it. And so that's my take on floor price. All right. So how do you think about monetization, especially in a world where royalties are zero and likely going to stay zero for a while, maybe forever. How do you think about that? Especially being your kind of before your core source of revenue, I would imagine, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I would imagine it's mainly from the royalties. So how, how do you think yeah, about so that? It was by the royalties. Now, thankfully, the moment I came into this business, I knew that we had to create, you know, toys and collectibles. And so that stuff is like weeks away now. So like, great, like there's, there's high-end collectibles, mass market toys, cheaper item products, you know, clothing and, you know, content reels is paying us. So like Instagram paid us like seven G's last month. That's nothing, right? But at the end of the day, like, 
who else is getting paid seven G's on Instagram and web three? Like that covers somebody's salary, right? Uh, eventually that could scale up. I mean, I could probably make the, I mean, based on that, I could probably make 50 at one, you know, next year, Instagram probably make us 50 G's a month. So like that can be relatively meaningful, you know, content and all of those things. I think an interesting take, an interesting insight for you is based on our analysis up until this point, if you're in the top 10 on daily volume on NFTs, you're making more money on 0.5% than you did on 5%. So this last month, we've made more money on royalties than we ever have. And they basically took the royalties 90%. Now, that's cool for me, right? But I still am a huge advocate for royalties because you know who's getting crushed? The little guy. Everyone who's already made it and the big guys are making more money. So it's like another situation like, well, welcome to the rich get richer club. And all of the little guys are completely obliterated. If you're not in the top 10, you're making nothing. Pennies on the dollar, just completely wiped off of the face of revenue. But if you can make it to the top 10, you're good. You're, you're making more money than you were before. And so I'm, I'm thankful and grateful that we've built a brand that can continuously and consistently be in the top 10. And I'm thank you for everybody who trades the pudgy penguins that puts us there. Like it's dope because the royalties cover our burn and some. Right. So like, it's a, it's great for like, you know, we're spending a lot of money right now, but we're not really losing any money because the royalties can cover that. I'm super appreciative for that model, but I feel really bad for the little guy because all this is doing is crushing the little guy. You gun, they're making, if you do the math, like you guys making exponentially more money than they did before. Right. But they're not, they're not complaining about royalties because they know that. They, but they all, they too care about the little guy. Like we all care about the little guy because the little guy is going to grow the space. The little guy, micro influencers have always been more impactful than big influencers. It's always been the case. D to C, CPG, anybody will tell you this. If you can find the right micro influencer strategy and inputs, you'll, you'll print, right? Uh, and, and so that that's my take there. So thankfully, we're not that affected. We're actually doing better because of it. But I really empathize with the little guy, dude, because they're getting, it's, obliteration. They went from making something meaningful to nothing. How do you think about, because you mentioned toys and kind of physical physical goods and products. How do you think about the, or maybe you don't think about it, uh, you, you kind of think of them as separate, but are you going to connect the physical world and the digital world in some sort of fashion? Yeah. So this is, this is where I think things are going to get special for us. Like our toys have a whole digital integration. Uh, we actually, uh, yesterday, Lorenzo published like a beta. Love Lorenzo because it's, I love when I love when we have an idea. I don't, you know, I'm not really involved. And then I go see the final product and I'm like, better than, better than I would have shaped it. I would have scoped it. So it's looking great. It's looking awesome. There, there, we, we've evolved this idea of this like toy digital integration into something a lot bigger than what it was initially. I know you and I spoke like three, four months ago and, and like I kind of alluded to what we were doing. I think I might have even shown you, but it's now, developed into like, hey, we're going to actually try to give a crack at some low fidelity, like the interactive experience. Um, but it was important for us that the toy was more than a toy. At a minimum, the toy gives people their first digital identity, a non-dilutive additive digital identity, an NFT that millions of people can have and be a part of Pudgy Penguins from an emotional standpoint, but just have none of the benefits of what it is to really own an NFT, you know, in terms of like price accrual and all that stuff. I, I, you have to tie it. I think that that is the magic. And I think that is really where like the paradigm shift in the real world is going to come. And I think we're going to set the bar there. 
Okay. So as an IP company, there's like, and you mentioned this before, there's like the world's your oyster. You can do games, you can do this, you can do this. How do you set your roadmap? How, how do you prioritize? Okay. You mentioned before, like, okay, Hey, we're not, you know, the greatest X, Y, Z. So we're going to focus on what we're good at. Um, so is it just looking at your expertise and be like, that's what we're going to prioritize? Or is it like, we're going to do phase one, phase two, phase three? Like, yeah, I want to hear about like that, that ability to prioritize and, and build out that roadmap to something that is like the grand vision. Yeah. So prioritize the thing that is, that, that's working. So like, for example, our Instagram, okay, we proved concept, but the content tier isn't like where we want it to be. So we like are evolving the content and we've evolved the content and now we're getting 10 million views on a reel. I'm like, oh, dude, keep evolving. Right. I think, I think a, one thing we, we did in the beginning and now like we're just not like just double down into the strengths. Like don't think because something is sufficient that you can go and move on to the next task, make that thing go from sufficient to excellent and then like prove it make sure there's a flow and there's a system that like people don't need to be like obsessed and like, like just stuck in one place and then like move on to the next. And so for us, I think our goal is just next 12 months in terms of priority is just like pound our core competencies because our core competencies, what the pudgy penguins team knows how to do better than everybody else. Any other team in the space is we just know how to make, we know how to grow social medias better and we know how to move product better. Like, Unequivocally, I know, and, and I say this in the most respectful way possible, like there's nobody who can do those two things better than us. So let's just lean in there, you know, like, why am I going to go and try to do like other things? And I would also say, I, I actually think Lorenzo is one of the best CTOs in, in, in a web, in, in an NFT project. I actually like, I'm seeing what everybody else is shipping and I'm like, I don't think they're shipping the stuff that he's doing. Like the, the, the products that we have in our pipeline are problems that are products that solve real problems and are like exponentially better than what other people are shipping. And he's doing it with like a ragtag team, you know? And so like ship better tech, solve better problems, grow bigger, better and faster, make better content that resonates with more people and sell more product. And so I think if we can do those, that's enough for us to be a multi-billion dollar business. And then we scale. That's amazing. Okay. So 10 year vision, like, you know, we, we, 10 years in the future, we're having this conversation. Is Pudgy is like a video game? Is it, there's toys, there's NFTs. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, 10 year vision for us to really get where we want to be. Like, there has to be a meaningful game. So I understand Yuga's roadmap for that. Like, I think you can build a $10 billion business around product and content. I don't think you can break the barrier without the game. I don't think you can get past $10 billion. And if you're asking me 10 years from now, I want to be a bigger than a $10 billion business. And so you have to have a game and you have to have like a short series that really sticks. So I think there's a SpongeBob angle for Pudgy Penguins. Our worlds are very similar to SpongeBob. And the reason why is because SpongeBob, like Pudgy Penguins have like snapbacks and Puffer Jack, like they're human. They're like human penguins. And SpongeBob was similar in the sense that like you, they ate hamburgers and Krabby Patties. They went to school. They drove cars that were boats, right? Like our worlds and the way that our world is being written is very similar to like, okay, we have the Berg which is our bikini bottom, which is like where the penguins live. The berg split from Antarctica and now, you know, travels around the world as it floats, but they hope to get back to their home. Right. And, and like, you know, instead of hamburgers, pudgy penguins eat sushi and fish, right? Like instead of, you know um, you know, they don't drive cars. They, they bought, they like, they slide, you know, like they, they just like slide throughout the ice and, and they have like sleds, like the, 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 the penguins who live in Beverly chills, we're calling it Beverly chills, the fluent area of the Berg. They, they have like 
you know, sleds and, and, you know, bobsleds and stuff like that. So, you know, like this is, this is the, uh, the most fun part of, of this business for us, but yeah, I forgot where I was going with that. Sorry. No, no, I, that, that, that was awesome. I was just basically talking about the, um, uh, kind of the, the, the big vision and, yeah. uh, you oh, know, yeah. w- w- if we were having this conversation like 10 years, uh, what we know, what, what would, what would pudgies look and look and feel like? Yeah. So, you know, obviously game, you know, short animated series, an amazing toy, you know, but from a high level perspective, like we're, we're a multi-billion dollar business at this point. I think we passed the $10 billion mark. We're doing hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars a year in revenue that's translated through licensing arrangements to our holders, right? So that value prop is tied between licensing floor prices, you know, holders have their version of their first edition Pokemon cards for this ecosystem. They're participating, they're interacting. Everybody's so stoked on, you know, believing in the vision and we're just helping people. And at the core, it's just like, we're this brand that just like, when people think about it, they're like, dude, love that. Like happy, makes me feel happy. If we can emit that emotion and we can create a brand where people rally behind this, like just feel good, happiness, like positive impact brand, like we will win. Awesome. Okay. So I have a two-parter. Number one, what makes NFT so powerful? And then number two, what is like the biggest issue around the ecosystem today? NFTs are so powerful because they align the incentives of consumer and brand in a way that was never possible before. And really take that statement and digest it. I'll say it one more time. But NFTs align the incentives of consumer and brand in a way that was never possible before. And so if you really understand the magnitude of that statement, it's a really powerful one, right? Because it's a vehicle that basically aligns the interests of somebody who believes in a brand and believes in a vision. And together, if we all champion this brand and champion this vision, you know, we will ultimately all succeed. Like it's just like, you know, if Pudgy Penguins becomes a multi-billion dollar brand, the NFT will succeed. You know, if the NFT succeeds, the more likelihood that I will become a multi-billion dollar brand. Like we are my consumers, the people who will be buying my t-shirts and my toys and my collectibles. We have aligned incentives, right? So powerful. The most powerful part about this, right? This is, this is the point where I'm trying to prove is this is why Web3 building a business in Web3 is more powerful because you have that instant feedback loop and that instant champion and affiliates of your brand almost with the snap of a finger in a way that takes years to cultivate in a Web2 brand. Um, and the next question, I don't know why I'm blanking on questions, dude. I'm like jet lagged. But you got to <laughs> No, it was, uh, so it was number one, why are NFTs so powerful? What, what makes them so powerful? Number two, what, what are the biggest issues around NFTs? Yeah, dude, I've been flying so much. The biggest issues with, uh, with NFTs today, I think, is really the culture. We, we have a really toxic culture. And I'm, I, I, thought, I'm, I thought you were going to say something about usability, but I want to hear this. This is... Yeah, no. So I'm, I'm stoked because I have a great community and like all the reasons that I kind of went on that tangent before where it's like, you can't really attack me, but like, dude, I, I, I know so many great founders that are just checking out because they're getting bullied. And it's just like, there's this lack of accountability here where it's like, no one forces you to buy anything. You're not forced to buy a pudgy penguin. If you buy a pudgy penguin, you do that because you choose and that because you believe that will make it happen. But if for some reason it doesn't, I think it's just like this casino mentality right now that just like everyone's counting on somebody like you don't buy art or, you know, you don't buy cl- like this is an um, it's like an amenity. Like it's it's a perk. It's a luxury. It is not 
It is not like you don't spend your last paycheck to go buy an NFT. And a lot of people are, and it's creating this really toxic culture where people are bullying the shit out of people. And I'm thankful that I don't get bullied, but dude, I feel so bad for people that it like, give you for example, I think one of the best founders in the space is Frank. I think Frank is an absolute superstar. I think the audacity that some of these people bully him for some of these decisions, like you are really messed up. Like something is wrong. Like, and granted we have bad days, you know, like, but like, there's this culture of bullying, dude, that is just simply not okay. You know? And also I, I think that um, the the culture for whatever reason is, hey, you owe me. Like, like if, if, if someone buys an FT, it's something like you owe me now. Like, like, you know, this, this company owes me whatever, which is weird. Cause like when you buy Nike shoes or when you buy whatever, you're not thinking like, oh, Nike now owes me. But when NFTs, it's, it's, it's kind of that, that mentality. You buy a first edition Pokemon card, does Pokemon owe you? You buy a Michael Jordan Fleer, is Michael Jordan, you know what I mean? Like in no other world do you collect these risk assets. Do like the, do you get bullied? Like none. Like, and I'm, I'm a risk asset connoisseur. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm risk assets number one guy over here. I mean, I could walk you through my house with like all this junk, you know, like I'm not complaining because my Michael Jordan Fleer got cut 70% in price. Like, am I going to Ken Golden and being like, dude, you messed up, you know, like, like, of course not. And here we have that. And that is our Achilles heel, dude. It just has to stop. It just needs to stop, dude, like instantly just stop. And so the quicker we can fix that, it's going to be impossible to eradicate completely because it's just human behavior. But I think more people need to digest what I'm saying and understand, like, it's just hurting everyone's backs. It's hurting, it's hurting your bag. It's hurting your friend's bag. It's hurting your community's bag. It's hurting the builder's bag. It's hurting the exchange's bag. The, it's hurting every single person's bag. Like every, every bag is being affected by this behavior. You know, it very, very weird. And, and, and I'm not sure. It's almost like a double-edged sword of like, people are so passionate that they feel the, the you know, the, the, the need to go talk to the founders and say, Hey, you're fucking up. This is what you need to do. X, Y, Z. Right. So, um, yeah, but on the other hand, it works the you know the other way where they're like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! I'm so happy to be here." Right? Where you don't get that same sensation from again buying your Nike shoes or, or, or you know whatever good. Yeah, awesome. All right, Luca, are you ready for the closing questions? Yeah. What are you bearish on? Uh, like a project in general, Any, anything in the world. Uh, I'm bearish on inflation. <laughs> That's good. That's good. What are you bullish on? B- obviously, besides pudgies. I'm bullish on NFTs and Web3. Wait, besides NFTs and Web3? Uh, I'm bullish on I'm bullish on the, the, this wave of consciousness that I think is is coming around people. I think people are starting to wake up from the bullshit. Cool. Wait, I want to I want to you know d- double click there. Can, can you elaborate? Yeah, dude. I just think um, I think as as we mature as as a species and we gather more information, we're just at least on my timeline and at least the content I consume, I'm seeing a lot of people wake up to the bullshit, like just like stupid things, like not just listening to like, for me, a really eye-opening moment was just when wall street journal and all of these guys were trying to spin the FTX thing for Sam. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, this is, so you heard fake news, you digested it, but like to see it, to like know so much about the truth and to see these major publications, just like, I was like, holy shit, this is a freaking scam. 
you know, like they are just scamming the, and so like now, like that was, a, and I was always conscious of fake news, but to see it in such real time. So I think just like more people are waking up to like bullshit, like that bullshit to like what you digest and what you eat and what you consume and, and just like what you put into your body. What, what's the information you're processing? Like, I think we're just waking up, dude. I'm, bu- I'm bullish to, to waking up. I love that. that that's, that's freaking awesome. All right. What do people misunderstand about you? A lot of people think I'm arrogant. I hate that. I hate when people say that, dude, I'm humble. But like, what do you want me to do? Say that like, we're not going to win or like that we're not the best product in the space. Because I genuinely believe that. I believe that so much. I put two and a half million dollars behind it. But I spend so much time championing the vision of Pudgy Penguins that like I'll see comments on Twitter like he's arrogant. He's not humble. Like I'll, I'll buy one when like, you know, we support humble founders. I'm like, dude, like... <laughs> What do you want me to be? You want me to be bearish on my own shit that I put two and a half million dollars in? Like, do you want me to give you an ounce of doubt? Because like, I'm completely humble. Like, dude, I came from literally dirt. Like I actually like slept in cars with my mom, you know, and my brother, like it doesn't get more from the bottom than me, you know, like, and, and I'm, I'm conscious and like, but like when it comes to my brand and my company, I'm going to be bullish every single time. And I'm going to be extremely bullish. Like I'm never going to give you a hint of non-bullishness unless I'm not bullish, but I'm incredibly bullish. So what do you want me to do? All right. What was your biggest failure and what did you learn from that experience? Uh, Biggest failure, 2019 started a company uh, to kind of take my influencer monetization to like a whole different tier, like just build out, like, like just less dependent on the influencer and just really leverage the influencers, like an initial spark. And I just took every bad beat. Biggest lesson I learned was if you want top tier talent, pay them top tier salaries. And so the, the team was built with a bunch of guys getting paid four or five, six grand a month, you know, and we had like 20 people working for us and they just all couldn't perform the way I wanted it to. And in hindsight, the reason why is because I was hiring people worth four or five, six grand a month. Not to say that four or five, six grand a month doesn't mean you're not worth something, but if I'm hiring a CTO or a CMO, you're not going to find a CMO for five grand a month. Unfortunately, the beginnings of Pudgy Penguin we did, but they had equity and like, no, these guys didn't. So like, there was just like, I just was trying to cut corners, hire too many people, uh, didn't cut fast enough, like should have cut the second we took our first bad beat. We took three bad beats in a row, but the third one, I was almost tapped out. I was like, holy shit, I'm going to, I'm going to take a lot of steps backwards if we keep going down this route. And so we just pulled the plug, but that, that was my biggest failure for sure. Totally. All right. Last question. How do you define success? happiness, dude. How happy are you? Like if you're working a ski lift and you're stoked to wake up every day and snowboard the mountain and like you're, you're successful. People think success is too much translated to money, but like in reality, I know kids who've spent $200 on a shit coin and made a million bucks. Are they successful to you? Because some dude just hopped into a discord, bought some Shiba Inu and like printed, you know, or a criminal, like a scammer. You know what I mean? Like those guys who fish wallets, like there's like a whole little slew of these little teenagers in Europe who are like just fishing wallets. They're in the club with golden, you know, iced out APs and Ferraris, you know, with the hottest chick. Like, are they successful to you? Because in the normal mind, people would look at those kids and be like, yeah, you're successful. Well, in reality, they're scammers, dude. So they're not successful, you know? So success, I think, can only be measured by happiness, how content and happy you are with your life. And so if you're a middle you know, America family and you're happy and you love your family and you love your job, you're successful to me. You know, I've been worth, you know, I had $10 million in my bank account and I was miserable, you know? So like, that's not, I was, I wasn't successful. So amazing.
Luca, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. I got to hop. I'm really late for a call. So later, dude.